There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombach, and we've got a great show for you coming up. This week, I was joined by Jim Manley, a senior attorney and constitutional litigator at the Goldwater Institute. We had a great conversation focused on freedom of speech on college campuses, what the First Amendment protects and what it does not, the difference between public and private schools, due process on campuses, safe spaces, and the model bill he helped to write, which has been introduced all over the United States. You can find out more about Jim and the Goldwater Institute and what they're working on at goldwaterinstitute.org. And I definitely encourage you to check it out. Thanks as always for listening. Please tell a friend about the show. Please feel free to share us on social media. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining us in spirit today is Centauri Minor. He's my podcast partner, but he was not able to make it. Uh, helping us move from awareness to action today is Jim Manley, Senior Attorney at the Goldwater Institute. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you. In your bio, it says that for more than a decade, he has been fighting to protect and expand freedom. That's that's a pretty awesome thing to have in your bio. So. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, human freedom is our most important asset, so I've yeah, dedicated my life to protecting and expanding it. It's It's been, it's also a lot of fun. So. Mm-hmm. And you are a, I don't want to butcher it, a constitutional litigator? That's fair, yeah. I uh, litigate First Amendment issues, taxpayer protection issues, and uh, did a bit of Second Amendment litigation uh, in my uh, previous life, and uh, so, yeah, all, all sorts of constitutional litigation. Got it. Okay, nice. One day potentially argue in front of the Supreme Court? Yeah, I, I filed briefs in front of the Supreme Court. I've argued in front of two state Supreme Courts. Nice. So, yeah. Very Maybe cool. Maybe one day. So we were talking a little bit offline about the Goldwater Institute, and I think that a lot of people are aware of it, but maybe not exactly sure what you guys really do. So give us a rundown of, of what's going on here. Yeah, well, the Goldwater Institute was founded in 1988 as a think tank and uh, with the blessing of Senator Goldwater. And uh, in 2007, we started litigating, uh, mainly under state constitutions, because what we realized was that some rights are are protected by the federal constitution, but not in a robust way, especially rights to uh, economic liberty, the right to, to earn a living, to go out and hang your shingle. And so we've been litigating under both state and federal constitutions since 2007. And in the last three or four years, we started litigating outside the state of Arizona in places as far away as Massachusetts, Georgia, North Dakota, Colorado, New Jersey, Texas, all across the country now. And uh, we also still have the the think tank running at, at full steam, and we've got a lot of legislative policy that comes out of the think tank, both here in Arizona and nationally. Got it. So you have your radar up, and when you see an issue that you feel is unjust, you throw your hat in the ring and you get involved. Yeah, well, we, we've been, uh, we litigate on all sorts of issues, uh, and so if an issue comes up somewhere else in the country, we, we jump on that. Um, uh, we're, we're fighting against uh, the medical monopoly in, in Georgia, where uh, hospitals are preventing a surgery center from expanding. We're fighting against... Uh, subsidies to public employee unions in, in Texas and New Jersey. 
uh, and we've been litigating First Amendment issues for a long time, and that's, that's sort of what got us interested in our current main First Amendment project, uh, which is campus speech. Got it. Now, just we're we're, we're going to spend a lot. I'll spend the majority of our time talking about that. But what what motivated what motivated you to go outside of Arizona? Well, there's a the reason we went outside of Arizona is that we've we've had a lot of success here, and so we had, we wanted to export that success to the rest of the country. Got it. There's no reason we should hoard all this freedom here in Arizona. <laughs> nice. Okay. So freedom of speech on college campus. Um, do you think that a lot of people are aware of what's going on? Is it now starting to bubble to the surface? Well, I think now people are aware. Uh, every group that I talk to is is already interested in the issue before I start speaking. And so we, we introduced a model bill at the end of January, um, January 31st. And two days later, UC Berkeley was on fire because Milo Yiannopoulos was scheduled to give a talk there. Mm-hmm. And so our, our timing was, was pretty good. Um, and since then, there have just been incident after incident where we've had shout downs and speaker disinvitations and these sort of violent protests. And then you add something that, you know, the, the tragedy that occurred in Charlottesville on top of that. And it's, it's really become a national conversation over the, basically the limits of free speech. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do you start to unpack this? But I read a, a, a survey that a group did. I'm not going to give a citation because I, I, I didn't write it down. But 20% of the students, current undergraduates, said that violence was acceptable to prevent people from, from speaking. Um, and that's obviously problematic. I think so. I think anybody who values free expression, who, who values a civil society, who values rational discourse, will be upset by that that figure. And, and even just twenty percent is obviously a minority, but that is that's more than enough to have a, a total breakdown of civil discussion on campus. And, and we've seen that time and again. You've got a few students who disrupt a lecture by just shouting uh, nonstop so that the speaker even continue to talk and that I think is just one step short of the sort of violence that we've seen at, at Berkeley and, and some other places it's, mm-hmm. it's force and um, it's the opposite of reason the opposite of discourse right so if you were to distill this whole problem down would you could you succinctly say here's really what the issue is well if you want to get very uh, broad and distill it down to the, the, the essence, it is reason versus violence. It is the question of whether we're going to have a rational discussion about issues or whether we're going to attack people that we disagree with. And, I, mean, I think that that is, that is the question. So are, are we going to have a, a, a lecture and then questions, a give and take, or are we going to have a shout down? Are we going to have a, a riot or are we going to have uh, a discussion? And I, I think our history as a country shows that the choice of rational discussion is, is more productive, and uh, obviously it's, it's closer to our, our national values. Right. Okay. And another piece that came out of the article that I read, it said that 
if speech is violence, then violence becomes a justifiable response to speech. Yeah, this idea that certain kinds of speech is, is the same as violence is uh, an anti-concept that just wipes away this whole discussion. And, and if, if, you, if you do buy into that idea that, that some, kind of, some speech is the same as violence because it, it basically because it hurts people's feelings, right? Um, well, then, then yes, certainly throwing Molotov cocktails is, is justified. But I think that that's a false equivalency. Ideas uh, have the ability to um, stir up strong emotions in people, but they don't have the ability to physically harm someone, violate someone's rights. Uh, the proper response to speech that you that you disagree with is is more speech. Is to counter those right. ideas with your own ideas. <laughs> Use your words. Yeah. So, well, and it's funny you you bring up that sort of schoolyard <laughs> etiquette. That is. That is what we're, we're getting at here. One of the principles that, that we enshrine in our model bill is, is take turns. If, if you disagree with the speaker, don't shout the speaker down. Ask questions afterwards. Set up an alternative event. Protest in a way that doesn't disrupt the speaker, but let him have his, his time to say his piece, and then take your turn to say your piece. It's, it really is that simple. Mm -hmm. So how do we get here? <laughs> How did all this happen? Well, I think that's a more difficult question than, than we can unpack in the time that we have. And, and it may be a more difficult question than anyone can really uh, tease out, that, that sort of cause and effect. Some of the, the impulses that we see that sort of give rise to this uh, hostility to dissenting views, um, this idea that um, sort of Western civilization is inherently racist and doesn't honor the, the contributions of uh, all, all peoples. Um, and because of that, anything that comes out of Western civilization is, is discounted in, in, in certain circles. And uh, I think that ignores this whole uh, concept of dialogue and this whole concept of debate. And you can have uh, a problem with, with certain aspects of Western history I think everyone should have certain have problems right. with certain aspects of it, but the but you don't get rid of those problems by ignoring them or pretending that they don't exist or pretending that um, that certain terrible ideas didn't really transcend the culture at certain times. We have to understand that history in order to move past it. And there's some I think resistance to this idea that we should have a, a, a full discussion about both historical views and current views. People want to just pretend that these terrible views don't exist and uh, pretend that we get rid of them by ignoring them. And uh, that doesn't work. You don't, you don't cure a disease by pretending that it doesn't exist. You study it. Mm -hmm. You don't get rid of a bad idea by just plugging your, your fingers in your ears. By yelling at it. Right. Got it. So... You mentioned UC Berkeley and uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and Ben Shapiro just spoke there and they spent $600,000 on security for that event, um, which is which is crazy. Um, I think that, that one of the things that is very confusing to everyone, uh, because we don't all study constitutional law and understand these things, is what speech is really protected. Is 
is hate speech protected? I think a lot of people, when you survey them, half of them would say that no, that's not protected by the by the First Amendment. Can you clear that up a little bit for us? Yeah. So the, this, I think, this got the most recent revisiting uh, from by by Howard Dean, uh, who was talking about the or tweeted that hate speech isn't protected by the Constitution, which is is absolutely false. Uh, the Constitution doesn't protect certain kinds of, of false speech, like defamation or libel. Um, it doesn't protect uh, incitement to imminent lawless action, but it absolutely protects people's views that are racist, that are um, abhorrent to mo most values that, that the Constitution enshrines or that most people hold dear. Uh, there is no content-based limit to the First Amendment. So you can say really terrible things, uh, and it's protected by the, the First Amendment. You can, you can even trademark uh, racial slurs, as the Supreme Court just decided, uh, and that's protected by the First Amendment. So the, a group called the Slants uh, was uh, applied for a trademark for their name. And uh, the, it's an Asian band that's trying to sort of reclaim that, that derogatory term. And okay. uh, their application was turned down. And so the hate speech people would say, well, great. Well, that's the First Amendment doesn't protect terrible racial slurs like that. And what the Supreme Court decided was, no, the, the First Amendment doesn't make those distinctions. It, it protects all speech uh, as long as it's not inciting violence or, or um, libeling someone. And so the, the Supreme Court overturned that decision and, and allowed their application for a trademark to, to be granted. Okay. So can you give me an example of what it means to incite violence? So, uh, like I said, uh, it's incitement to imminent lawless action. So it's encouraging people to immediately take a, a, a violent um, step. So somebody standing on the, the courthouse steps calling for a mob to go burn down the, the, um, the, the courthouse. Okay. Um, short of, of that, short of imminent lawless action, there's there's a lot of latitude. Uh, there's the, the idea of even violent uh, political protest um, is, uh, or violent um, uh, words, the words that, that suggest that, you know, there, there was a case that where a, a, a draft uh, protester during the Vietnam War said, if they, if they put a rifle in my hands, the first person I want to get in my sights is, is Johnson. And the Supreme Court uh, held that that was protected expression, even mm. though it, it's, it sounds very violent. It's, it's, a, um, it's political vitriol, so it's protected by the, the Constitution. Right. He wasn't saying that I'm going to go get a rifle and take a shot at the president. He was right. saying that if I get a rifle, then that's what I will do. Got it. So an example could be somebody on stage pointing to a group of people and saying, hey, you guys pick up a rock and hit that guy in the head. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. Yeah. That would be not protected. That would be protected. to imminent lawless action. But, um, but, but short of that, then, then the speech is protected, saying that a group of people you know, uh, deserves to be hit over the head with rocks is not inciting uh, to imminent lawless action, probably. It would depend on the context. Right. But uh, that would fall short of, a, of an immediate threat.
Okay. So when people are talking about hate speech, a lot of the time in these examples of people protesting a, a speaker that they don't like coming to college campus, they say, well, I'm not going to put up with that hate speech. Um, and whether or not the person coming that's relevant whatsoever, or in the case of Ben Shapiro, they call him a white supremacist, which is not the case. Um, but if somebody, if Richard Spencer, a member of the alt-right, did come to your campus and was just talking about his views of the alt-right, while it may be derogatory and you may not like it, that's getting labeled as hate speech. Is that kind of the environment that we're in right now? Well, and you know, as as a term, hate speech is is kind of an empty term. I, I don't really know what it means. And and if 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 you wanted to to outlaw hate speech, you would have to appoint someone to be the censor to decide what ideas are off limits. And I, I don't know anyone I would nominate for that task. I don't think anyone would uh, would pick me to decide for them what ideas they could hear. Uh, so just calling something hate speech doesn't exclude it from the protections of the First Amendment. I think somebody like, like Richard Spencer, I think if he wants to come to your campus, that's an opportunity for you to engage him in some really embarrassing debate because his ideas are, are incredibly thin, incredibly uh, poorly researched, and, and um, I think students are missing an opportunity to really engage and put him on the spot and ask him tough questions. If they um, if they try to get get his event shut down, uh, that's not to say that I that I would want to invite him to my campus, but uh, if he's there, if he's spreading his ideas, better to confront him and and challenge him than to just uh, let him spew into the echo chamber. And that's I think what's so frustrating about what's going on on campus right now is instead of having that robust dialogue, debate, whatever you want to call it, conversation about things, it's, we just don't want to hear it because it's triggering, uh, it's violating our safe space, things like that. Um, do you think that the administrations of, of universities, the professors, have a hand in this? I don't know if that's beyond the scope of this or not, but... Well, no, and, and I, I, I do think that I've I've read some discussions and, and talked to some students who say that this really isn't coming from the student body, that it's more uh, the professors who are, who are pushing this idea of um, that, that certain views are off limits and that, that we just don't discuss certain ideas that are outside the, the campus mainstream. Uh, so I, I, I think this, the students are really the ones that are losing out here. You know, they get, they get called snowflakes. and. And I don't think that this is really their fault, and I don't think it was even their idea. They've, they have certainly embraced it, but because they've been dropped into this environment where, where professors and administrators are trying to protect them from these ideas that, that, that make them uncomfortable, they, the, the university should be doing the exact opposite. They should be putting these, these students in tough situations so that they learn how to deal with views that they that they disagree with, so that mm -hmm. they learn how to have a robust uh, and civil dialogue. And I, I don't think that it's too much of a stretch to say that the reason we have such little political dialogue in our country, in our government, is because we've we've lost that tradition of debate and, and of, of civil confrontation, of, of, of a battle of ideas. 
Got it. How how is a public university different than a private university in this? Well, in in our view, a, a private university can order its affairs in any way that it likes, and so the the private universities aren't covered by the First Amendment, and they've got broad latitude to have whatever policies they want. Now, as it turns out, a lot of the private universities, uh, Yale, um, uh, University of Chicago, have much more robust protections for free speech and have issued reports that are really the basis for a lot of our work. Uh, and, and so they're, they're doing a great job of protecting free expression. Now, there are some other examples, uh, Evergreen uh, College in, in, uh, that comes to mind as, as one where um, private institutions are falling short. Um, but um, for public universities, they are governed by the First Amendment, by the Constitution generally, and so their authority is limited in the same way that, that uh, uh, the, the state legislature's authority is limited. And so they have to uh, abide by the, the First Amendment when they're, they're making these decisions that impact speech. Got it. Okay. Fair enough. Do you think that just in all this, a rise of alt-right, white supremacist groups, does that have anything to do with this? Is that, is that taking place? Well, certainly that has something to do with it because these are the groups that are, that are generally being attacked. But if you take Evergreen State College, for example, that, that has nothing to do with white supremacy. Brett Weinstein is a progressive. All he said was perhaps people shouldn't be judged uh, or excluded from campus based on the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. I don't take that as a, a white supremacist view at all. I don't think take that as an alt-right view at all. I think that's sort of a basic value of our Constitution, at least since the Civil Rights Movement. And so it, it does seem to go beyond the alt-right, but obviously they, they get the headlines. And uh, the, the most uh, vitriolic reaction we see from campuses is, is focused on them. Um, but for us... The, the, what's at stake is the principle of free expression, and that, that's what's at stake in all of our, our First Amendment litigation, is, is this idea that um, more speech is better, and we, we should be engaging in, in a, a dialogue uh, rather than, than having speech be restricted. So uh, the, the, these alt-right types have certainly sensationalized, sensationalized the issue, but I, I think the issue would still be there, even if um, these these folks weren't making headlines. Got it. So, what has the Goldwater Institute done? Well, we started off uh, addressing a, a small issue here in Arizona with with free speech zones, and this is where college campuses set aside a tiny little area of the campus for speech activities. And some students at Paradise Valley Community College were handing out constitutions, but they were not in the free speech zone. So the university arrested them, and really, <laughs> really. <laughs> um, so you can't hand Get out the back of the cop car unless you're in the free speech zone. Yeah, and uh, yeah. yikes. So, <laughs> so we we helped uh, craft and, and pass a law that eliminates free speech zones, and so now the whole campus is a free speech zone. You don't check your First Amendment rights if you step outside of the the First Amendment box on wow. campus. And when we, we, when we were involved in that fight, we realized that this is, it's a broader problem. 
and um, uh, Stanley Kurtz, our co-author on our, our model bill, uh, he got in touch with us, and, and, and he's been looking at this issue for, for years and years. He's, he's been an academic uh, for years. He writes for National Review Online, and he's been following this, this issue. And so he got in touch with us, and, and we started talking about all of the ways in which the, these anti-speech policies are, are playing out on campus. And, and we crafted a model bill with, with Stanley that addresses free speech on campus broadly. This it addresses the problem of, of speaker shout-downs, of uh, disinvitations where uh, a group invites a speaker to campus and the administration isn't willing to stand up to the hecklers, isn't willing to provide the, the security that's necessary to have the event go forward, mm -hmm. and so the event gets canceled and the, the, the mob wins. Um, address this idea of free speech zones, address this idea of speech codes where harassment is defined so broadly that really anything that offends someone can be sanctionable. And we saw that here in Arizona. The University of Arizona put out a job a description for uh, speech police, basically. Uh, students who were going to be paid by uh, the, uh, the, the uh, residential life department to basically monitor dorm room bowl sessions and make sure they didn't uh, get too heated. Wow. And uh, if they if someone said something that, that was harassing, that was triggering, uh, then then these speech police could report them. They've they've pulled that pretty quickly for some reason. Yeah, uh, oddly enough. Oddly enough, yeah. Um, but uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and so then we are also getting at this issue of institutional neutrality. And uh, occasionally, this this doesn't happen uh, as often as some of these other problems. But you know, public universities are funded by by taxpayers, and they, they shouldn't be taking issue taking positions on on issues of, of public importance, because the the taxpayers shouldn't be dragged along to, to sponsor that speech that they might disagree with, and worse still, the if the university takes an official position on on something on, on like uh, say uh, investment in fossil fuels, for example, then the students and the professors might feel an obligation to go along with that that official line, that official position, uh, and and may even be compelled to do so in certain circumstances. So our bill calls for institutional neutrality as well, uh, so that the university doesn't take controversial positions. Now, there's some wiggle room there in the bill, but uh, we we want to instill that idea of neutrality as a as a, a central value, and. By sort of wiping away these speech codes as the first step, these, these broad harassment policies, and replacing them with a discussion of the importance of free expression, of, of, a, of a dialogue about dialogue, right at the beginning, right at freshman orientation, sort of reset the, the, the conversation around the First Amendment, and, uh, and hopefully start students off in their freshman year with this idea that Dialogue is what's important. That robust debate is going to be part of this college experience. That you may have your feelings hurt, but in the end, you're going to be stronger for it. Uh, you know that is what we're really trying to accomplish in the long term. Uh, in the short term, we also think that it's necessary to have some discipline discipline procedures in place to, uh, you know, punish students who engage in shoutdowns. Uh, and it's also important to have due process protections, though, for, for students who are accused of, of violating the free expression rights of others, because 
that's a whole other issue that has, has been bubbling up lately, this, this problem of, of campus due process and the, the total lack of anything resembling due process of a fair trial, of, of the ability to have a lawyer, the ability to even see the evidence against you. Mm. And so we, we, we have strong due process protections in place as well. Got it. Okay. So there's, a lot, there's a lot going on here with this bill, but it's, it's designed to be sort of a comprehensive approach. Okay. So you're drafting the bill, and then theoretically speaking, anybody could take your language and put it through the state level? Right. In any state. Yeah. We, so we, we wrote the model bill, and it's, it's sort of uh, some provisions that are adaptable to each state. North Carolina has passed it into law. And um, about half a dozen half a dozen other states are looking at it as well. It's it's working through the process in Wisconsin, in Michigan. Uh, the the legislature passed it by overwhelming margins in Louisiana, and the governor vetoed it. And he didn't explain exactly why, but the the objections that we get to the bill come from the universities, and they don't like the bill for a couple of reasons. They don't like this idea that they're not doing a good job protecting free expression even though the record is absolutely clear that there are problems here. Right. And they, they don't like this idea that the legislature is going to tell them that they have to take the First Amendment seriously, that the legislature shouldn't be involved in the, shouldn't meddle in the internal affairs of the university, which is, is just astonishing because the legislature has a duty to protect our constitutional rights. And if another level of government that the legislature has responsibility for overseeing isn't protecting constitutional rights, the legislature absolutely has to step in and provide guidelines. And the universities, they like to think that they sort of function on their own off here without any adult supervision, but right. the legislature has authority over the state universities for a reason, and it, it's important that they take it seriously, but, but the universities bristle at this idea that they that they need that they need oversight, and so I think that's part of the reason that the bill got uh, vetoed in Louisiana. That's interesting. Yeah. But we're, we're planning to bring it back, and we're planning to bring it back in, in uh, at least half a dozen other states this coming session, including Arizona. Got it. So... How do how do you get that into the hands of, let's just use an example in in Iowa, mm-hmm. here here in Arizona, you've you you've crafted this awesome model bill. How does how do you let Iowa know? Hey Iowa, <laughs> it's funny actually. We so we we as I said we released the model bill in in January at the end of January, and there were uh, eight states that had picked it up by within a couple of weeks. And most of the time, it was just a legislator looking for a solution to this free speech problem, and the their staff or the legislator found our bill because there really wasn't anyone else offering this sort of comprehensive solution to these problems. No one else really had an a, a, an idea about how to how to fix this problem, and so it really came you know grew organically. Uh, we we've, we've done a little bit more to to try to. Um, push the bill out there this session, but it blew up much, much more quickly than, than we expected it to, in part because the issue just ignited after the, the Milo event and, and everything that came after that. Right. Well, shame on me for not realizing that that, that was completed in January. How long did it take you to write it? Oh, uh, we 
started writing it uh, um, in 2016, sort of maybe around this time, 2016, doing the research and and, and the, the, the crafting of the language. And uh, it was it was a process. It was a collaborative process between uh, myself, uh, Jonathan Butcher, and Stanley Kurtz, and and some of the other folks here at Goldwater. And so, uh, it, you know, with all those cooks in the kitchen, it takes a while to get get things uh, figured out. Can only imagine. Yeah, but and we did a lot. We did a lot of research into this issue to to try to understand what uh, what are what, what were the best practices. And uh, as as I said, a lot of that research came from reports that, that came out of, uh, of of Yale and Chicago, and uh, and and then also just looking at what the state of the law was and and where we could improve things. Uh, the sort of the baseline protections that courts have recognized. Got it. What does, let's just say that there's a group that is opposite of, of your beliefs, what, what would their criticisms of the bill be? Just to play devil's advocate. Sure. Well, we, we have a, uh, an uh, FAQ on our website that sort of goes through the okay. common um, objections that we get. So... To, to find a group that's really opposite of uh, our view on this is is difficult outside of the university because really what the bill does is protect free expression broadly for both protesters and invited speakers mm-hmm. and so some of the the objections that we get I think are are disingenuous um, some folks just aren't reading the bill and so when for example in our bill we call for uh, a student, who has twice been found uh, responsible for violating the free expression rights of others to to either be suspended or expelled. Okay. And some people think that that's too harsh a penalty, or that it, it shouldn't be set in the in the law. Now, of course, the the Woodward report from Yale calls for suspension or expulsion after one shop down. So we we gave him a little more latitude yeah. here. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, and then there's this, this question of whether that would, would chill uh, protesters' rights to, to protest. And I absolutely don't want that to happen. I, I want protesters to have the, the full ability to present an alternative viewpoint. But what's absolutely clear in the law is that you can set up rules that embody that, that uh, playground etiquette that we were talking about before, mm-hmm. take turns. You can have time, place, and manner restrictions on speech where you, you can't use a bullhorn in somebody's face uh, to get your point across. You have to do it in a way that is, is civil. And, um, and so that's one of the objections that we get, that, that we're going to chill protesters' rights. But it, we haven't given the universities any more authority. We haven't whittled away at any protections that the First Amendment already provides. We've, we've just told the universities, take the First Amendment seriously. And in a lot of these shout-downs, what the university does is simply stand on the side, and and the, the university police literally will stand there with arms folded and just not do anything, yeah. and just sort of either let the, the situation burn out on its own, and which sometimes happens, or just let the, the situation devolve into the point where the, the event is canceled. That, that happened at the University of Michigan. Uh, the political union put together a debate about uh, the whether the tactics of the Black Lives Matter movement were, were counterproductive. Just just the tactics. Sort of assuming, I think, in that question that, that the movement itself had value and just wondering whether the tactics they're taking are, are the best ones. Got it. The, the event was shouted down. Yeah, that's they not happening. Couldn't, couldn't even have a nope. debate about it. <laughs> and, and the university did nothing. 
absolutely nothing to to to, um, to um, penalize anyone who was involved in the shutdown. Hands in pockets. Right. And so that's why that's why we call for the 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 mandatory penalty after after two uh, violations, so that the university can't just stand on the sidelines and not do anything, or or take Middlebury for example, where where Charles Murray was was shouted down, and the professor who was there to debate him was physically attacked, and the only thing the university did in response was to put a letter in a couple of the students' file, and and if they're good for a year, then the letter comes out of their file. So not even a slap on the wrist, right? So that's why we think that it's important to to enshrine some some guidelines for universities to file to, to follow so that they can start to take this this issue seriously. Right. We're not really telling you what to do, but if you could actually follow the Constitution, right, that'd be great. Yeah, do do something. <laughs> that'd be great. Thanks. Okay. Awesome. Nice. Um, it just 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 because I'm curious, we were talking a little bit about um, Dave Rubin up front as well, and he's been experiencing a lot of demonetization of his shows on YouTube, and there's been a lot of that going on, or at least that's that's what I've heard. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Of, of you'll have to explain that issue to me. Uh, I'm not familiar with it. So YouTube, it's... it's no, yeah, I understand it's, monetization of YouTube. Right, and, and it's certainly a private company. Yeah. Um, anything that they deem to be, I, I suppose, hate speech uh, or harassment or anything along the, those lines, they, they demonetize. Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, I didn't know that that was happening to, to Dave Rubin. I, I've watched some of his shows. I, I'd be surprised. I mean, they're, they're interview shows, right? That's Right. It's... Uh, that's One would not consider him to be a uh, somebody who was inciting anything bad. Well, no, I mean it's it's again it's it's sort of hard to, to do that when you're having a debate, right? Because when you're having a, a, a guest on who and I, I know in, in many uh, episodes I've watched that there's disagreement mm-hmm. uh, presented on the show, so um, <clears throat> that's surprising to me. I mean, yeah, as you as you mentioned, YouTube's a private company, so that they they can do whatever they like. The beauty of the internet, though, is that there are other outlets uh, to, for folks to show their support, like uh, Patreon, Patreon, right, um, and other ways that that people can express their their um, their displeasure with YouTube's decision. And frankly, you can speak out and uh, and tell YouTube how you feel uh, about their decision to to uh, demonetize those videos. Excellent point. So, folks that are listening. Um, how can they get involved if they are concerned about this? Well, absolutely, if we have a bill running in your state, and, and you can go on our website and, and, and check to see if, if we do, uh, at goldwaterinstitute.org, and uh, absolutely contact your legislature, legislators and let them know that, that you support free expression on campus, that you think this is the right way to, to protect free expression. So places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, California, um, Arizona. If if you're in one of those states where we have a bill running, you know, help us. Let 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 the decision makers know that you think this issue is important. And if we don't have a bill in your state, then get in touch with us, and and maybe we can fix that problem. Right. And you know, this this is an issue that sort of goes beyond the legislature too, because if you went to a university and you're, you're writing a, a check to the, uh, the alumni fund every year, 
well, you, you have you have more power than you may think mm-hmm. uh, to pick up the phone and, and let the administration know that you think this is an important issue, that, that you think that they're either doing a great job or, or not doing enough to protect free expression on campus. Uh, or at least let them know, uh, have them tell you what they're doing to protect free expression on campus. Put them on the spot and let them know you're watching them. Right. Okay. How long is the is the model bill? Oh, um, roughly. It's it's a fairly short bill, uh, just a few pages. Really? Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and this so, is not one of these congressional bills. You know, I'm thinking it's this two thousand page long. document. No. So it's something that that the average layperson could pick up and, and read. Yeah, very much so. And the, the bill sets some guidelines and, and puts it on the universities to develop policies that fit within these guidelines. So they, the, the policies the universities come up with can be tailored to what the what works for that institution as long as they stick within these these guidelines. So I, I think it's the bill is the bill is very um, easy to understand. Easy enough, even for a college administrator to understand it. Yep, sure. <laughs> Super easy. Got it. Well, I know that uh, we set out to cover a lot of ground, and, and I think that we certainly did. What What did I not ask that I should have? What 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 should we be talking about that we haven't? <clears throat> I don't know. We've 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 certainly covered a lot. I mean, I think uh, there's. A question here, sort of a deeper question about what sort of society we want to have, mm-hmm. and whether we want to have a society where we're, we're picking a, a, an official version of the truth, where we're picking which ideas are are acceptable to discuss and which ideas are completely off limits to even discussion. Uh, I, I I would rather live in a society where we have robust dialogue about all issues and where the response to an idea we disagree with is to discuss it and, and figure out where where we're wrong and figure out where the other person is wrong and, and somewhere in there come to the truth. Um, you know, I, I think if, if we don't have the freedom to, to speak and to think, then, then we're not really free. And if, if we get closer to a, a society where, where we're having to decide what is hate speech? What is the acceptable limits of speech? What is the official version of, of the truth? Then, then we've given up something that's really very important, very unique uh, to this country, to mm-hmm. this idea of, of individual autonomy and, and, and freedom. So I think it's worth fighting for. Agreed. Very much agree. Such a wonderful quote that I'm sure that obviously you are aware of, that goes, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Which is Evelyn Beatrice Hall. It was attributed to Voltaire, but apparently... Yeah, I was going to say, I, th- I think that is that is the right attribution, and, and it's it's absolutely um, it's the whole reason we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, to fight for the principle of free expression, not to fight for any particular view. Right. I wish we were fighting for different people sometimes, but mm-hmm. uh, you know the the principle of free expression applies to everybody, applies most uh, urgently to minority views, to views that aren't within the mainstream. We don't we don't need a First Amendment to protect views that we all agree with. We need it to protect the minority views, uh, even if they're you know, 
terrible and, and really odious to, to us. And right. That's why we have the, the legal protections that we do, so that no one can decide what, what views are, are the right ones, that we can each decide for ourselves. Excellent. Jim, we will direct in the show notes uh, folks to the website. Is there anything else, any other location you want to point people to to learn more about you? No, if you go to goldwaterinstitute.org, and uh, we've got a whole page set up to, to discuss the campus speech issue. So check that out. And all kinds of other fascinating topics that you guys are working on. Oh, yeah, we could go on for as long as you like on, on all the things we're working on, uh, speech-related and, and uh, all of our other freedom initiatives. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I think we, we definitely appreciate it. Um, thanks, as always, for listening. Remember to tell a friend. Feel free to share us on social media. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.